think it's doubly important tonight that we pray before we begin. Shall we pray? Hallelujah. Father, it's a pleasure to be together again and to know the presence of Jesus in the midst. Father, I just have such a burden tonight upon my heart for all of the students, the young people who are about to sit examinations. And Father, in Jesus' name, I'm asking, Lord, that you will give them the ability to get down to their work. Father, give them the ability to concentrate. Give them the ability to take in all that they have to learn for the examinations. I want to pray for all the young people in our fellowship specifically, and for all the students who come to our fellowship, that, Father, they might know the great peace of God, which bypasses the understanding in their lives. Father, I remember my own examination years and the tremendous stress that was entailed in them. And yet, I just thank you that having been saved at university, I knew what it was to have the cedar of Lebanon as my support. Oh, Father, indeed be a very present help to all of them, Lord, at this time. And for us tonight, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you will show us wonderful things from your word, things that are enlightening, things that will give clarification. And I want to pray especially for all the young Christians who may listen to this tape, people who perhaps know nothing about prayer, and that, Father, they might understand exactly why there is a thing called prayer and exactly how they ought to pray. And Father, just this time, please, build a firm foundation on which we can build next time as we speak about prayers of faith. Father, just come and, Father, take my stumbling lips and may they be the channel of great blessing. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. I hope you remember that in the seventh and last basic series, I've decided to deal with the things that I consider essential if we are to grow in the Lord. And so far, I talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we've done a detailed biblical analysis of that. I also then have spent three sessions talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and specifically moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Now, in the remainder of this course, I want to deal with certain other things, things that are well known to most who are mature, but things that some young Christians have no training in at all, but things that are absolutely essential if you are to make maximum progress with God. And when I was uh, considering the Bible studies that remain, I kept remembering the words of my good old dad. Now, I've talked about my father occasionally. My father was a bronchial asthmatic all his life, and yet he was very keen on keep fit. And some of his words echo. He had all sorts of little sayings, you know, that I remember, and I must say I repeat them to my own children. And one of the things that he used to say was this, three things are necessary for good physical health. First of all, he said, you've got to breathe well. Now, most people miss that out because most people assume that they can breathe well. My father, being a bronchial asthmatic, the thing he wanted to do more than anything else was to take a deep breath. And isn't it funny, if you haven't got something, you always look at other people who've got it and think, oh, if I have what they had, I'd use it right. And he used to say, all these people around, they only use about a third of their lung capacity. Why don't they breathe properly? He used to have all sorts of sayings like, um, if you exhale, then the inhale will be all right. And he used to say, the key of good breathing was exhaling. 
And it is true. He used to count it, you know. I could hear him counting it, you know. You breathe out to ten. You breathe in to five. So you count ten as you breathe out, and you breathe in counting five. And it was true. And may I say, when I was a, a young lad, and quite a rebellious lad at that, he often, you know, if I said, oh, I'm bored, or I've got a headache, or something like this, he used to say, what you should do is take some good deep breaths. And of course, I always used to rebel about that. But he was a very good breather, was my father. He used to spend certain uh, times in the day actually practicing deep breathing. Now, that's the first thing he used to say. If you breathe well, you will oxygenate your blood, you will feel more vital, your brain will be more alive, and so on. So, first of all, you've got to breathe well. The second thing he used to say was, you've got to eat good, nourishing food. And he certainly did that. By the way, that was the one thing I never rebelled against. I always enjoyed good, nourishing food, and the more the better. My father and I were both Weetabix addicts, and we used to share and indulge our passion together. It was really good. The third thing he used to say, and I didn't like this either, um, the third thing he used to say was, to be healthy, you've got to have regular exercise. And he used to do, you know, the chest expanders, and he used to cycle 10 miles every day, and he was uh, one of the healthiest people that I ever met, barring, of course, his structural weakness. Now, it was those three things. And as I prayed about the rest of the course, the Lord said to me, they are not only the three essentials for a healthy body, they're the three essentials for a healthy spirit as well. A person who is healthy spiritually knows how to do this. They know how to breathe spiritually. They know how to take in nourishment spiritually. And they are all the time involved in spiritual exercise. And so for the remaining course, we're going to divide the studies up into three categories. Spiritual breathing, spiritual nourishment, and spiritual exercise. And I must say, the spiritual exercise is the biggest category. So this time and next time, we're going to talk about spiritual breathing. And we call spiritual breathing prayer. Prayer is the equivalent of taking deep breaths as far as you are concerned. And by the way, prayer is as important as breathing is. Do you know that? It's very, very important. You don't have to look too far into the Bible to find how important prayer is. You just have to look at the life of Jesus. You just have to see how much time Jesus himself spent in prayer. And remember this, he was the most spiritual person that ever lived, and he was always praying. He prayed constantly. Sometimes he went aside to pray, and he wanted to be alone, and so he used to go aside to commune with his father. Sometimes he would pray with the disciples and in a crowd. Sometimes he'd pray out loud. Sometimes he'd pray quietly. Other times he agonized in prayer. But the important thing is he constantly prayed. I've actually met some Christians, you know, who think that the more spiritual you get, the more you move in the Spirit, the less you have to pray. And they say, well, the whole of my life is a prayer. You don't find that when you look at the spiritual man, Jesus Christ. He took prayer very seriously. He prayed as he was walking along in his daily life, but he also had specific times when he went and communed with the Lord. And beloved, if Jesus has to do it, we have to do it. It is as essential as breathing as far as we are concerned. The difference, however, between breathing, 
Physical breathing and prayer is this. Physical breathing tends to come naturally. Well, you have to give some babies a bit of a kick start, you know, but once they've got it, then you don't have to teach them anymore. You don't have to say, come on, dear. You go like this. It's natural to them. The tragedy is, however, that prayer is not natural. Prayer is something that most people realize that they need. Even non-Christians realize that. I mean, atheists pray. I used to pray myself as an atheist, not just when I was in trouble, but when I really felt I'd been a sinner. Isn't that strange for an atheist to actually do that? But I remember as an atheist actually praying. Um, But they don't really develop it, and they don't really continue in prayer. Prayer is something which is basically abnormal to us. You know, we find it difficult to continue in prayer. And we've got to understand that prayer being so important, being something that we've got to do, is something we've got to seriously work at. We've really got to get to grips with it, you see. You'll notice the disciples realized that prayer wasn't natural when they actually asked Jesus, in Luke 11, 1, for example, teachers to pray. And by the way, I would pray now for you that you would ask the Lord to teach you to pray. Because it is not within your natural realm to do it correctly. God has to be your instructor in this thing. I hope you have asked God to teach you to pray. You should ask him to do it. And we need to ask him regularly. We need to ask him to take us deeper into prayer, for example. All right. Prayer being important and being unnatural is, of course, wide open to the attack of the enemy. And we find the natural man within us and the devil come against prayer. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. And Jesus here refers to the attack in a very interesting way. In verse 1, he says this, and I'm not going to actually read the parable that he gives here, but it's called the parable of the unjust judge. But in verse 1, he says this, Then he spoke a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, as it has it in the King James. By the way, I've left my normal Bibles at uh, Leamington Spa, and so I'm actually using the revised authorized today. But that's the way the King James puts it, that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. And can you see in that little phrase, and not to lose heart, what he's saying is one of the things that seems to follow prayer around is a loss of heart, is a fainting that comes in. First of all, because we pray, and it seems sometimes as if the prayer isn't being answered. And sometimes we think, Lord, have you forgotten me? Why aren't you answering this particular prayer? And Jesus says here, look, prayer sometimes does need perseverance, but don't lose heart concerning it. But he's also saying here that sometimes the attack is so ferocious that we really feel like giving up in prayer. By the way, at the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the attack in two ways, can't you? First of all, you see Jesus agonizing in prayer. You can see that it took such effort for him to actually get through in the particular prayer that he was praying. You know, there was no barrier between the Father, but so enormous was the task that was ahead, he had to overcome something in himself, as it were, when he prayed, Father, let this cup be taken from me. It was a cry of agony in his heart. And then, of course, he'd taken disciples with him for support. And he got up, he went to see them, they were fast asleep. 
oh, it's happened to us all at times, hasn't it? We know it's urgent to pray. Uh, we begin to pray, and all of a sudden, the sleep starts coming, drifting over us. Isn't that staggering? It's part of the attack on prayer. By the way, Satan only attacks prayer because it is so vitally important. And so we've got to persevere. We've got to get through. Jesus said this, the spirit is willing within these people. The tragedy is that the flesh is so weak. And so here he tells a parable of the unjust judge. Excuse me. He tells the parable of the unjust judge. And what he says is that there's continual knocking needed before finally the judge will open the door. And if you keep on knocking, it will be opened unto you. That's what Jesus said. And he's talking about the attack that is made on prayer at this particular time. By the way, I also like the use of the phrase to faint. Have you ever been so busy that you've forgotten to pray? Has that ever happened to you? Oh, it's happened to me very, very frequently indeed. And you're so busy, you forget to pray, and all of a sudden you begin to think, what is this attack upon me? You know, oh, it seems such an incredible attack being made upon me. And all of a sudden you remember that you've forgotten to commit it all in detail to the Lord. And sometimes when this happens, it hasn't happened so much to me recently, but sometimes when it happens, I get away with the Lord, just the Lord and me, and I just wait upon him in total silence. It's lovely. And I just spend 20 minutes with the Lord. And you know, it's like taking a good deep breath of air. Oh, suddenly I feel invigorated, and suddenly the energy is flowing through again. And sometimes we all reach a place of such busyness that we think, Lord, I just haven't spent enough time with you. By the way, notice what my father said. My father said, it's 10 seconds exhale, five seconds inhale. And sometimes we forget to inhale in prayer. You know, we spend ages and ages and ages, don't we, giving out to God, God, I need this, and God, I pray about this, and God, please, will you do this? But do you know, another aspect of prayer is this. You've got to wait on God, actually ask him to speak to your heart and remain in silence before him. Prayer is as important as breathing, as far as we are concerned, as Christians. All right? Right, I'm going to assume that there are certain people listening to this tape who actually know nothing about prayer at all, and I want to get down to some real nitty-gritty stuff. I've called this talk The Mechanics of Prayer. I think I could equally call it The Nitty-Gritties of Prayer. I want us to go to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. And before I actually speak on Genesis 20, can I just explain what prayer is? Undoubtedly, prayer began as just conversation between God and man. And you remember, don't you, it's clearly stated in the book of Genesis that God and Adam had communication in the Garden of Eden. There was a constant dialogue going on between them. And certainly, that was what prayer originated as. It was simply God speaking to man, man speaking back to God. But it was the fall of man which actually brought in a brand new dimension as far as prayer was concerned. Now, this is extremely important for us to understand. Do you remember that when the fall occurred, God immediately communicated to Adam? He began to speak to Adam as if there was no difference between what had happened before the fall and after the fall. But the tragedy is, and I want to remind you about this, the fall was cumulative. The fall happened at a moment of time. 
But then it gradually increased, and the effects of the fall began to multiply and spread, even as mankind multiplied and spread. All right? So it began to actually increase in intensity. And this is important to understand. As the fall began to spread in its effects, so the effects of the fall began to be seen more obviously. For example, the weather began to deteriorate, all right? The weather was perfect before the fall. After the fall, of course, the climate began to deteriorate very, very rapidly indeed. Soon, the effects were seen right round the planet. And as the effects of the fall increased, so, you see, prayer beginning to change in its form. Remember, just after the fall, God spoke normally to Adam. In Genesis chapter 4, he spoke normally to Cain. Genesis chapter 6, he speaks normally and fully to Noah. Genesis 12, he speaks normally to Abraham. But from then on, you find, the voice of the Lord declines. And have you noticed that prayer gradually changes, and instead of God doing all of the speaking, then you suddenly find that man starts doing a greater and greater and greater proportion of the talking. Until finally you come to a passage like Genesis 20, and you find that God does some speaking, but now he actually shows that he needs his people to pray. Let's uh, have a look at Genesis chapter 20. I'm going to begin verse 1. Genesis chapter 20 and beginning verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dealt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerah. Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerah sent and took Sarah. This was a lie, by the way. Of course, she was the half-sister. But the point is, he should have said, she's my wife. But he didn't say it. He acted as if, oh, well, we're not married. You know, there's no covenant between us. And Abimelech liked the look of this woman, Sarah. And so Abimelech begins to woo her. He wants to take her as his wife. In verse 3, God comes to Abimelech. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Isn't that amazing? By the way, what about grace in this passage? It's Abraham who's committed the sin. It's Abimelech that gets it in the neck. Isn't that absolutely staggering? You see, this is a grace passage. Again, but notice the grace of God to Abimelech. God actually warns Abimelech that he's done something wrong. Abimelech, of course, objects, verse 4. But Abimelech had not come near her. He said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's the grace of God upon him. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. Now, isn't this strange? God wants Abimelech to be healed. He wants him to live, but he now needs Abraham to actually pray for this man in order that he lives. And if you go down to verse 17, you'll find that Abraham does exactly that. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, 
and his maidservants. And here you find God needs a righteous man, a sinner, notice, but a man saved by grace, to actually pray for this unrighteous heathen, for God to work in his life. And here we see the other aspect of prayer, and the one that dominates as far as we are concerned. Prayer is not just conversation between God and man, and between man and God. No, it is that, but it's more than that. I'll tell you what prayer is. Prayer is the means by which God's will is done here on earth. God has a will. He desires to heal Abimelech, but he needs Abraham now to pray for Abimelech so that he can heal him. And here is how prayer actually overcomes the influence of the fall. Let's describe it like this. God has people on this earth who do not belong to the devil. Now remember, when Adam fell, he handed over the creation to the devil. Adam was lord of the whole creation. He had jurisdiction and dominion over the creation, but he actually voluntarily laid down his dominion and gave it into the hands of the devil. As a result, we now call this earth a fallen earth or the devil's world. Have you heard that phrase? Or my favorite is cosmos diabolicus right? I think that sums it up better than anything else. And so we live on this cosmos diabolicus where the devil, for a temporary period of time, rules on the earth. I've dealt with this in various tapes in the past. Now God is the one who, as it were, has been excluded from this planet. Satan is the one who is called the god of this earth. Now what's God done? He's done something absolutely brilliant. He's put a fifth column here on this earth. Do you know what a fifth column is? A fifth column is a group of people who live in a certain nation. They look as if they belong to the nation, but the fifth column actually wants an outside power to take over in that nation. For example, before the Second World War, Hitler put certain people into power in Norway. There was a man called Quisling, for example. And there were a whole group of Nazis who lived in Norway, And Hitler sent them there, he trained them and all the rest. They never told anyone they were Nazis, but they were Nazis all right. And the moment that the invasion was about to begin, they started setting off bombs, they started taking over key posts and so on. They were a fifth column. They looked as if they were supporting the Norwegian regime. They weren't supporting the Norwegian regime. They were actually on Hitler's side. That's what we mean by a fifth column. The resistance in France was our fifth column. Right? And when D-Day occurred, they did everything to disrupt the German communications and so on. They wanted us to win. Now, we are God's fifth column. Isn't that wonderful? Right? The fall has occurred. This is cosmos diabolicus. But on the earth, there's a group of people who are not the devils. People who belong to God, and God has kept them on the face of cosmos diabolicus. Wonderful. And we've got a job to do. First of all, we want the overthrow of the devil, don't we? Don't, don't we? Yes. That's what we want. We want the devil's power overthrown. We want God's power to come. Now, what do we do? Here we are. We are representatives of this earth. The devil thinks he's got it all his way, but he has no sway over us. Remember the words in Job when the devil appeared before God. And God said, oh, where have you come from? He said, from walking up and down on the face of the earth, from strutting to and fro over my property. And what he was saying is, it's all mine, you know. I've wrested it from your control. And I imagine God sort of looking down slightly and saying, well, what about Job? And what about Job? Job was a believer. 
And what he's saying to the devil is, you might control the rest, you don't control Job, because he's one of mine. By the way, if the devil struts about today, God often says, well, what about Molly? She's not one of yours, he says to the devil. What about Keith over here? He's not one of yours. No, we are the fifth column of God. Now, we see something going on on this earth. We know what God's will is. We know what the devil's doing, and it's our job now to go to God and say, God, as representatives of this earth, we invite you, please, to have a hand in this situation. And God, being the perfect gentleman, never resists, you know, never refuses. And he says, oh, thank you very much, I've got the official invitation. And down he comes and he starts moving. And if the devil objects and says, excuse me, who invited you in? He's able to say, oh, my people invited me in. We, who are from the dust of this earth, invite God down into this cosmos diabolicus. Now, that's what prayer is about. Isn't that wonderful? We are those who see God's will, and we pray it into action on the face of this earth. And that is the essential role that prayer has, as far as we're concerned. This is why, incidentally, in the Lord's Prayer, you have the first part put in so powerfully. Let's turn to it, shall we? In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. In Matthew 6, verse 9, we have the falsely named Lord's Prayer. I say falsely named because, uh, in fact, it's the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And he doesn't mean necessarily you have to repeat this prayer, though it's a good prayer to repeat. What he says is this, when you pray, make sure it's in this order, make sure that it's got the same push that this prayer has got. All right, now, let's read it, verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, says Jesus, our Father who art in heaven. All right, we'll talk about that in a moment. Hallowed be your name. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's verse 10 that I want to concentrate on. Your kingdom come. And do remember that the word kingdom doesn't just mean a geographical location. It means someone's right to rule. Lord, your kingdom, your right to rule, come on this earth. We invite you in, in Jesus' name. Then it says this, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Your will is being done perfectly in heaven. We invite you to come and do your perfect will here on the earth. And the devil doesn't like it and he hates you for doing it. You upset his little plans, but that is what prayer is all about. In future studies, we'll be dealing with verse 11, 12, and 13. But do you see that? Prayer is communicating with God, but it's more than that. It's inviting God's activity on the face of this earth. And I have to tell you this, that God is actually limited by how much prayer actually goes on on the face of this earth. God cannot and will not barge in. The day is coming when he will barge in, but even that will be in response to our prayers. Come, Lord Jesus, and Jesus will return right? But until that time, he needs us to pray. And it's no good our being passive about this. We've got to pray, and we've got to continue to pray. It's essential that the will of God may be done. Now, next time I'll be talking about prayers of faith, and I'm going to develop this in great detail next time, because it's very, very important. All right, so that's why we have prayer and what prayer is about. Let's go back to basics, however. May I tell you this, and uh, most of you in this room know this, prayer is usually addressed to the Father. Usually addressed to the Father. Perhaps 90% of the times it's addressed 
to the Father. Why is that? Because the Father is the planner, and he is the one to whom prayer is to be addressed. Jesus prayed to the Father. Not only Jesus, Paul himself prayed to the Father. All right? Let's uh, have a look at this. If you go to Ephesians, Ephesians in chapter 3, this is how nitty-gritty we've got to be concerning these things. Ephesians and chapter 3, here is Paul praying. All right? And he says this, and he's praying specifically for the church here, and he says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, do you see, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the Father. I bow the knee to the Father. That is true of most prayer. Now, there are, however, certain occasions in the Bible when Jesus is prayed to. And please, I don't object too much if uh, you happen to pray to Jesus, right? Most of the occasions are to the Father as the planner, but certain times it was to Jesus. Let's have a look at uh, a few of them. Uh, if you go to Acts chapter 7, and we see the prayer of Stephen. And some people say, ah, yes, but he only prayed to Jesus here because he saw Jesus, you see. And it was because he saw Jesus that he prayed to him. Normally, he would have prayed to the Father. Well... We'll see a prayer in a moment where Paul doesn't see Jesus and where he does pray to him. Let's uh, just have a look at this. And here is the martyrdom of uh, Stephen. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. I love that phrase. You can just see it, you know, gnashing with the teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now that's a prayer to Jesus, do you see? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Lord Jesus again, do not charge them with this sin. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And that's a lovely thing, right? You're just in the middle of this violent scene and you fall asleep. Really good. And that's the relaxation that God gives. Paul actually prays to Jesus in 2 Corinthians and chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. And here he has, uh, because of the abundance of revelations that he received, he actually gets a thorn in the flesh. Incidentally, I always have to smile when certain people say, well, I've got a thorn in the flesh, you know. Because what it means is that they've got such abundance of revelation, God has to keep them humble. It is quite a tall thing to actually say that you've got a thorn in the flesh. He has a thorn in the flesh, and look what he does about it. Verse 8, concerning this thing, he says, I pleaded with the Lord, and I think that's the Lord Jesus himself, three times that it might depart from me. He prays about it. Lord, remove it. And what does Jesus say? No, I won't remove it. That's what Jesus says. It's an example where prayer is answered with a no. 
Well, 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 we'll talk about that in a minute. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, and Paul receives it as from the Lord, and he says, therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing? All right, so here are two occasions when Jesus is prayed to. And beloved, may I say, you do as you are led on any specific occasion. Don't you be bound by that. However, it is rather interesting that generally there is no prayer addressed to the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that strange? Very, very odd. You look through, even when David says, you know, remove not thy spirit from me. He's talking to someone else, not to the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, Holy Spirit, don't leave me. He doesn't say that. Lord, remove not thy spirit from me. And more than that, when Jesus actually prays for the Holy Spirit to come, do you notice he doesn't say, I will pray the Holy Spirit that he'll come. He doesn't say that. Let's have a look at that, shall we? In John chapter 14, John chapter 14, beginning verse 15, because it's a natural bit of context here. Right? Look at this. If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father. Isn't that interesting? And he will give you another helper, or the comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And you see, even here, the prayer for the Holy Spirit to come is addressed to the Father, not to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that odd? All right, well, what do you do then if suddenly you find yourself praying to the Holy Spirit or you remember a time when you did pray to the Holy Spirit? Please don't get into a mad panic. Just don't do it. It's really not worth it. Because, you see, Romans 8.26 tells you something, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we know not how we should pray as we ought to pray. And what that means is he simply readdresses the envelope. That's what it means. So you've actually sent a prayer to the Holy Spirit. He simply uh, crosses out the Holy Spirit and sends it on to the Father. So you don't have to worry. He is the one who helps you. The humility of the Holy Spirit is something that is worth a study by itself. It's absolutely marvelous. All he wants to do is the will of the Father. Whatever the Father tells him to do, that he'll do. All he wants to do is glorify Jesus, you know? It's absolutely thrilling when you actually have a look at that. But do you see, most prayer is addressed to whom? the Father, as the great planner. Again, just go over the page in John 16, and you'll see it, John 16, 23. In that day, it says, you will ask me nothing, says Jesus. Now, I'm going away, he says, and I know you're sorrowful about it, but in the days while I'm away, you will ask me nothing. He says this, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. You see, prayer addressed to the Father. And I must say, I'm totally used to praying to the Father now. But I think it's important that you pray to the member of the Trinity that you are closest to. My little girl always prays to Jesus, you see, because he is the person that she knows, right? And she felt a hand upon her when she was in bed some time ago, just a few weeks ago. And she came in and told her mummy, and she said, oh, I've had this hand on me, much bigger than Daddy's hand. And Ross said, well, who was it? Oh, it was Jesus, of course. You see? He's the one. So she addresses all of her prayers to Jesus. And I think we mustn't be religious about this. 
you know, it, it's important that we're not. Nevertheless, let's see what the Bible says. And the Bible says the Father is the one generally addressed. But notice then that we need a mediator. And if you go to verse 23, look what he says uh, halfway through. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father, and notice the little phrase, in my name, there. And prayer is addressed to the Father, but it's always said in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. There is no other mediator save the Lord Jesus Christ. And being the mediator, we ask all things of the Father in the name of Jesus. Now, that little phrase, in the name of Jesus, has a very specific meaning that I'm going to speak about next week. It doesn't mean you can pray anything in the name of Jesus. All right? To pray in faith in the name of Jesus actually puts a limitation on your prayer, as we're going to see next time. But if you ask the Father anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full, he says. Lovely. So we ask the Father in the name of Jesus, and I think there's something else. We've got to ask in the power of the Holy Spirit. And where do you find that? You find that in Jude, verse 20. The book of Jude and verse 20 just before the book of Revelation, for those of you who don't know, it's one of the easiest books in the Bible to find. This is the book of Jude. And in verse 20 it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. And you see, some prayers just come from the vocal cords. You know, and you hear some people pray. But what God says is, no, when you pray, it's got to come from deeper within you than that. It's got to come from the place where your human spirit and the Holy Spirit are joined together. You've got to pray with all your spirit. We Christians must learn what it is to do everything in the power of the Spirit. It's terribly important that we do. We need to sing and praise in the power of the Spirit. You have to dance in the power of the Spirit. You have to work in the power of the Spirit. But you also have got to pray in the power of the Spirit. How many prayer meetings have you been to, like me, where, quite honestly, people are just praying from their voice box? Oh, dear Father, please just come and do this. Oh, dear Father. And you know that it's not connected with their heart. It's got to be connected with the inner depths of your being. That's praying in the Holy Spirit. All right? We'll deal with that when I deal with the anatomy of man. And we'll understand that the spirit of man is joined, if he's a believer, with the Holy Spirit. Now that's important. All right, so prayer to the Father in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what sort of stance do you have to take when you pray? I mean, is there a special thing that you have to do? Most uh, places you go to, they say, shall we bow our heads? And that is an introduction to prayer, you see. And so everyone bows their head religiously. No, you don't have to bow your head. Do you know you can pray in any position you want to be in? The Bible talks about men who pray while they're standing up. Some men pray in the Bible with their hands lifted up. Others pray with their eyes lifted up. Some pray while kneeling. Others pray while genuflected on the ground, with their face down to the ground. You see? And what we learn from the Bible is whatever position suits you best, you just do it. Right? Sometimes you are limited in the position that you can take up. May I tell you this, that when I pray in my own bedroom, I like to kneel down. Sometimes I like to lie flat on the ground. It depends on what I'm praying about and how earnest is my particular prayer. But when I'm traveling on the tube in London, that's a different thing. 
I mean, it's no good thinking, oh, I must just pray for someone, and then genuflecting in the middle of the rush hour. Mind you, they'd act as if, uh, you know, they didn't notice. They'd step over you, as long as they didn't touch you. Funny, isn't it? A, a friend of mine said that uh, he noticed that when he was sitting, an American friend of mine, that when uh, people were sitting on the British tube, they never touched one another. And he said it was uh, them trying to pretend they had a big country with loads of space, you know, and they, they were marking out their territory like this, you see, and you mustn't touch. Well, that's what they do if you're genuflected. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't ma matter what position you're in. Your prayer will get through. I mean, Jonah prayed from the belly of a whale. We don't know what position he was in. He might have been between the kidneys and the spleen. We just don't know what position he was in, but God heard it anyway. So it really doesn't matter what position. You feel free. Incidentally, I went to a certain place where they had a revelation of praying with their eyes open. And they said that when you pray, you ought to look up. And so instead of, let's bow our heads, I suppose it's let's raise our heads. And uh, I went in there and they warned me about this and they said, let's pray. And they were all looking up like this with their eyes open. Like this, you see. And I tried it at first, and all I was saying was, what an unusual shape this, <laughs> this ceiling has, and what interesting colors. Like this. You'll find most Christians don't, sometimes I do it, sometimes I say, Lord, help me. Right? But that's a quick prayer. Most Christians actually close their eyes because it's easier to concentrate, you know, with nothing else around. Yes? So, but you feel free. You pray the way you want to pray. There is one stipulation, I think, and that is that you shouldn't pray too long, right? There's no need to go on and on and on. Was it D.L. Moody who once was in a meeting and the man started praying and praying and praying? D.L. Moody wanted to get on with the meeting. This man wouldn't stop praying. So finally he made a public announcement. He said, well, our dear brother finishes his prayer. We'll all sing him number 243. <laughs> <coughs> you were... You don't have to do a long prayer. I mean, you'll notice when uh, Peter was walking on the water and he started to sink, he didn't say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, glug, 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 glug. He didn't say that. All he said was, save me. That was it, save me. And that was enough. You see, you don't have to go on and on and on in that way. One other thing, Jesus also said that when we pray, we're not to use vain repetitions. And he's talking about the sort of thing that the transcendental meditation people do, you know. They repeat a certain word over and over again until it drives them into a, a sort of frenzy. We're not to do that. We're to pray with our minds fully focused on facts. Some people use the name of Jesus like that. Jesus, 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 Jesus. No, 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 no. There's no need to do anything like that. But one thing we are told to do is to pray constantly. Keep on praying. I think we'll have a look at that. If we go to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, I'll include verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, rejoice always, it says, and then this little phrase, pray without ceasing. Now this is very difficult. Pray without ceasing. You see, to us, without ceasing means never having a break. Now, this is jolly tough. Most of us can only do one thing at a time. And apparently, we've got to say, oh, I pray for Pam, and I just pray, you know, for this person, and Maggie, and I pray for Ralph, and I, 
I pray for them, and someone says, oh, hello, hello, and I pray for them, and I pray, how are you? I'm all right. I pray for Brendan, I pray for, and keep on and on and on, and what do you do? I'm just praying and not getting on with my work. It doesn't actually mean that. Paul actually uses the exact same phrase without ceasing here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. And he just says this, no need to turn to it. Or verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And then he says this, talking to the Roman church, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, same word, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now, is he lying here or what? I mean, he says, without ceasing, make mention of you Romans in my prayers. Is that true? I mean, does it mean that all day long, oh, I'll pray for the Roman church, pray for, because the Ephesian church might feel a bit left out in this, you know, oh, I'm too busy praying for the Roman church. Pray. No, the, the phrase without ceasing doesn't actually mean something that goes on without a break. What it means is something which reoccurs. The actual word in Greek was the Greek word used for a hacking cough. Now, a hacking cough. Have you ever shared a room with someone who had a hacking cough? I actually have done this many years ago on a field trip. And you come down bleary-eyed in the morning, and you say he was coughing all night. He was coughing without ceasing. What do you mean? Do you mean it was... <coughs> all night? Of course you don't mean that. No, no, you don't. No one coughs for six or seven or eight solid hours like that. What do you mean? Well, what you mean is you're drifting off to sleep and suddenly... <coughs> you're woken up and you're drifting... <coughs> and the thing about this hacking cough is there's no rhyme to the thing. He doesn't cough once every five minutes because you could get to sleep then, you know, like a ticking clock. You can get to sleep. No, no, no. He coughs and then five minutes later he coughs and then there's a gap of ten minutes, then he coughs, then two minutes, then he coughs... And it keeps reoccurring, you see. Now, that's what the Greek word, without ceasing, actually means. And what it means is this. That you're going through the den, you're working hard, and then you have a coffee break, and you think, oh, Lord, just pray for John. Send it up. And then um, you get on with your work, and then uh, have another break a little time. You say, oh, Lord, Father, just make it really good tonight, in Jesus' name. You see, and there are these bubbles of prayer going up. That's praying without ceasing. And up goes a bubble, and up goes a bubble, and up goes a bubble. That's actually what this is talking about, all right? So you pray here without ceasing, and that's important. And sometimes you have to pray the same prayer. Oh, dear, now some people don't like this. There's a book written by a certain man who says, when you pray, if you pray in faith, you should only pray once. No need to pray more than once. I think that is so ridiculous and so anti-biblical, I can't tell you what I truly think about it. Now, it is true that sometimes you go to pray something and you receive a gift of faith. And sometimes you pray about something and you just know you've got it. Then you know you don't have to pray again about that thing. I've done it frequently in the fellowship. You know, there's trouble going on in a certain corner of the fellowship, and I hear about it. They don't know I've heard about it. And so I get my prayer mat out, and I start praying about the thing. And after, say, agonizing about it for 20 minutes or half an hour, I know I've got the victory. I'm given the faith for the victory. Now, I never had to pray about that thing again. I know I've got it. But there are other things where I have to keep on praying. It's because of my importunity, my constant knocking. Like the landlord, 
the land lord <laughs> knock 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 by the way if it was true that we only prayed once there'd be no prayer for britain we just have one day meeting and that's it and say well do you pray for britain no i prayed 10 years ago <laughs> no i prayed in faith i know we're all right and that's it prayer for israel goodbye I mean eat your heart out this is it and uh, have you prayed for Israel recently? No. I prayed 20 years ago, and I prayed in faith. No need to pray again. We can't do that type of thing. Sometimes we need to pray. And over tricky situations, there is spiritual attack, and you've got to meet, you know, the enemy head on, and that means you've got to keep on battling through on that particular thing. Look, what I'm saying is, prayer doesn't fall into neat little patterns. You've got to be led by the Lord in the particular circumstances and be real about it. It's terribly important. All right, now I'm going to do two things. And uh, the second of these two things is rather fascinating, and I've never heard this spoken of in this way before, so this is lovely. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to list the five types of prayer that are named in the Bible. So let's go over to the blackboard and you'll find there are five distinct types of prayer. And by the way, you should use all five of these types of prayer. The first type of prayer, and it must be put first, is confession. Where you confess your sins to God and God forgives you for your sins. It's essential to be in fellowship and it's the prayer of confession that gets you into fellowship. And that must come before any other. By the way, before every meeting, you should make sure you're fully in fellowship with the Lord, confessing not just the sins you've done, but the sins you've thought about as well. All right? The second type of prayer we call praise. And a praising type of prayer is a prayer that extols God for who he is. Father, we thank you because you're the great and mighty God. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We extol your holy name. You are the God who is able to do all things. Is your arm shortened? No, your arm's not shortened. That's a praise type of prayer. We need to spend time praising God. Most Christians today, unfortunately, are so busy reading their shopping list out to God that they forget about this prayer. It's very important. The third type is the prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer of thanksgiving is a prayer which thanks God for what he's done. By the way, I long in our meetings for much, much more prayer of thanksgiving. The people in our meetings might stand up and say, Lord, I just thank you for the way you've blessed me this week. Lord, I just thank you you've given me this. Lord, I just thank you you answered that prayer. Lord, I just thank you everything's going wrong, but I've got the peace that passes understanding. Hallelujah. You're the great God in all this. We've got to see more thanksgiving prayer. I would challenge you all in every meeting. You don't have to receive dynamic things from the Lord. All of us should be able to pray, prayer number two and prayer number three, in every meeting we go to, if necessary. I just challenge you. How wonderful if we had a whole meeting of people just extolling God, giving testimonies and giving prayers of thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Well, I think it would. Four, you have prayers of intercession. Now that's a very deep subject and needs a whole talk, really, by itself. This is the most selfless type of prayer that there is. In intercession, you see what the devil is doing in someone's life, in a certain situation, in the country, in the world. You know what God wants to do, and you act as the person 
who's standing in the breach between the two. And no matter what it costs you, you will certainly get no glory from this thing, but you actually forge ahead in prayer to make sure that God's will is done in that circumstance. That's what intercession is all about. And any person who is an intercessor, they will know how selfless they have to be. They will know the attack of the enemy upon them. Of course they will, and they've got to be vigilant. They'll also know the strengthening of God in this matter. They need all sorts of things, like a discernment. They've got to discern the spiritual attack that is upon them, and the spiritual attack upon the person or the event that they're praying about. But that's a very important type of prayer. I hope that every member of our fellowship intercedes on behalf of the fellowship. You should do it. It should be a normal part of your prayer life. And the fifth type, and most of us are very good at this, is petition. Petition, you ask God what you need. That's what petition is all about, you see. All right, so there are five types of prayer, and may I say that in your prayer life you need to practice all five types of prayer, and please will you make sure that you do. Some of you may have got stuck on number five and number one, right? And they're the two that you do. What about um, adding number two, three, and four in the midst? It's rather good, I think, to do that. All right, now just to end the Bible study for tonight, and this will take us uh, a little time, I want to have a look at prayer itself, and I want to see some rather interesting developments concerning prayer. You see, the interesting thing about prayer is this. Prayer generally has two parts to it. Two parts. First of all, you've got the desire that's in your heart that has caused you to pray the way you pray, And secondly, you've got the actual words that come out of your mouth. So two things, the desire in your heart and the words that you speak. I'm going to reverse them. What I'm going to say is, number one, you've got the prayer itself. That's the words. Two, you've got the desire which led to that particular prayer. Those two things. For example, a man who prays, Lord, make me a missionary, Really what he's saying is, Lord, I desire to serve you. And it's the desire to serve God that causes him to pray to be a missionary. Do you see the point that I'm making? Now, if you divide every prayer into the desire behind the prayer and the prayer itself, you will find certain rather interesting results. For God can do one of four things to that situation. Sometimes, and this is the one we all long for, he says, yes, to the prayer, and yes, to the desire behind the prayer. That's answer prayer. That's what we call answer prayer. Yes, 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 I know the desire, and I say yes to it. Yes, I know the word you've spoken, and I say yes to that. However, there are other combinations. Sometimes God says yes to the prayer, but no to the desire behind the prayer. I'll show you these from the Bible in just a moment. That's an interesting one, isn't it? You pray words, he says yes to your prayer, but doesn't grant you the desire that is behind it. Oh. The third interesting case is where he says no to the prayer, but yes to the desire behind it. You'll find this is very useful when you look at your own prayer life and your own answers to prayer. You'll see he's answered many more prayers than you've ever dreamt that he's answered. And then the last one, and some people don't believe in the last one, but it does happen. He says no to the prayer and no to the desire. God can say no, you know. It is a little word in his vocabulary. And there you've got it. So there it is. 
Yes, yes. Yes to the prayer, yes to the desire. Yes, no. No, yes. And no, no. Right. Let's have a look at a yes, yes. You pray a prayer, there's a desire in your heart, and God answers the exact prayer. And let's go to John 11, and let's see a yes, yes in the life of Jesus. John 11. And you know, don't you, this is the raising of Lazarus. Now, in verse 41, this is what we read. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. This is Lazarus. He's been dead four days already. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, the desire in Jesus' heart here, when he prays, is that the people may believe that God has sent him. That's the desire behind his prayer. But his actual prayer comes in verse 43. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now there's an example where the desire is positively answered and the prayer itself is positively answered. We see one in the Old Testament in the life of Samson. In Judges and chapter 16, we see a desire and a prayer and they're both answered in the affirmative. Yes, yes. Judges 16, verse 28. And here's Samson. He's in the heathen temple. And by the way, these temples were quite small, believe it or not. Quite long, but the pillars were close together. And in verse 28, there are 3,000 people on the roof having a party. Some party, that. And verse 28, Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. Lord, the desire in my heart is to get vengeance on these people. Lord, strengthen me. Now, do you see, the desire is one thing. His prayer to be strengthened is something else. But God says yes to them both. And so Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. He braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. A yes and a yes. All right, what about the second one now? Here, people have a desire in their heart which causes them to pray a certain prayer. God says yes to the prayer, but he doesn't give them the desire that's in their heart. This is normally the type of prayer that an out-of-fellowship believer may pray. And the example I would give you is found in Numbers chapter 11. By the way, when you hear people speaking on prayer or whatever they're talking about, ask, does it fit in with the Bible? Not with one passage, but generally with all the revelations in the Word of God. Only then can you trust that it is right. And here are the people, they're in the wilderness, they're feeding on the manna. Manna means what is it? And they didn't know what it was, but it was always there, and they collected it. And after a while, it's typical of us all, isn't it? We get used to what we've got. And so they got used to the manna, oh, not manna again. That's the sort of thing. 
And so they began to dream about the earlier days. And when you dream about other things, you always forget the bad bits. You always remember the good bits, you see. And it always gives a wrong idea of that. Verse 4, now the mixed multitude, these were the Egyptians, these were the descendants of the servants, right? These are the oddbods that had joined Israel. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We're tired of this manna. We want meat. And they were remembering it, you see. You know I think that manna's a bit like Weetabix. You know that, don't you? And however, verse 5. And then they remember. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. They forgot about the stripes on their back and the hard work and all the other things. All they remembered were these things. And by the way, there's hardly an ounce of energy in any of them. Right? Hardly any goodness in them. I mean, the cucumber. Really good. Melons, leeks, onions, garlic. Now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. And so they cry out to God, Give us meat, give us meat, give us meat. Now, what is the desire in their hearts? The desire in their heart is, quite honestly, to rebel against God's provision. And their desire is to live a life of luxury and a life the sort of which they had in Egypt. That's the desire in their heart. And so they speak with the words, give us meat. God says, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do, he says. I'll say yes to your prayer, but I'm going to say no to your desire. And if you read over here, verse 18... In verse 18 of Numbers 11, Then you shall say to the people, says God, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. Yes, I'll do it, he says. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not ten days, not twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? And by the way, Moses says, Lord, how can you do it? 600,000 people on foot. You're going to provide meat for them all? God has to say, excuse me, Moses, it is God you're talking to. And what happens, verse 31? Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all round the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all that night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. That's a lot. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Did they get their ease? No. Did they get their rebellious desires? No, they didn't. They got the meat. They didn't get the desires. And that's why the psalmist describes them in very interesting terms. Again, don't turn to this. But in Psalm 106... He says this, He gave them their request, he says in verse 15 of Psalm 106, but sent leanness into their soul. They longed for fatness and they got leanness. So there's yes to the prayer, no to the desire behind the prayer. Isn't that interesting? All right, what about the next one? No to the prayer, but yes to the desire. 
Well, this is an easy one, actually. Go to the book of Genesis. Genesis in chapter 17. And here Abraham, who's longing for a son, and he'd had a son, Ishmael, by his slave, if you remember, the slave girl, Hagar. And he's longing for an official son. And so he prays here, verse 18. Abraham said to God in Genesis 17, verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Lord, can't you accept Ishmael as my official son? His desire with all his heart was to have a real son that God would accept. And so he prays, Lord, make it Ishmael. What does God say? No. Where is no to prayer? Well, in verse 19. Then God said, no. Sorry if it offends your theology. No. No, I won't. I won't accept Ishmael, but you'll have a son. Isn't that nice? Praise the Lord. So there's no to the prayer, yes to the desire. I think I've told you many times about my prayer. Lord, send me as a missionary to Tibet. Please, Lord, I want to go to Tibet, you see. Lord, I won't have lived until I've seen Lhasa. That's what I used to say, you see. Now, why am I still in Chichester? Well, God said no, you see, no. Well, I think he said no, anyway. <laughs> if I suddenly leave for Tibetan missionary school, you'll know what's happened. But I think he said no to that. But why did I pray that? Because I wanted to be used by the Lord. Now, the Lord said yes to my desire, but no to my actual prayer. The last one is some that some people's theology does not allow for that God actually can say no to your prayer request and no to the desire behind it. Dear, oh dear. He does say no at times. He does. No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you try and work up faith, he sometimes says no. By the way, he said no to Jesus' prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said this, Father, let this cup pass from me. Why did he say it? He said it because he knew the agony that was ahead, and he was tested in every way like us, and quite honestly, his heart melted within him. He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, and then he added that most glorious thing, nevertheless, Father, your will be done, not mine. And what Father said to him is this, Jesus, it has to be my will. I cannot allow this cup to pass from you. It was the will of the Father to bruise him. You see? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? You see? And because Jesus was able to say, Lord, your will, though, be done, God answered that prayer positively. Yes. Your desire is to do my will. I will do what you desire of me. You will fulfill my will. Lovely. Glorify your name, Father, was what led Jesus on. But you see, in his humanity, he's crying out, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But Father couldn't answer it, couldn't say yes to that prayer. He couldn't. There's another example, actually, in Luke 9. In Luke 9, <clears throat> where we get these sons of thunder, James and John, and they see the way the Samaritans had rejected Jesus, and they're angry, and they see the way the Samaritans don't receive him. And in verse 54, they say this, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? And that's what they wanted to pray. Father, we're going to deal with these Samaritans, and we're going to pray fire to come down from heaven. And Jesus stops them dead in their tracks. No, you don't, he says. He won't allow them to have vengeance on the Samaritans, and he won't allow fire to come down from heaven. Unfortunately, they didn't actually get to the place of actually praying at this point. Before you pray something, do check it's the will of the Lord that you pray it. 
It is important, you see. And Jesus rebukes them. He turned and rebuked them. He said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. Now, some people won't ever allow God to say no. I read plenty of books that say, whatever you pray, God will say yes to you. You might have to wait a time, but definitely the answer will be yes. God always says yes to prayer if you pray right. If you've got enough faith, if you've got that, whatever it is, God will always say yes. Listen, if you don't allow God to say no, I think you are acting incredibly stupidly. Incredibly stupidly. You know the people who say, well, pray not just any washing machine, a gold-plated one, right? A fur coat. Whatever you want, you just pray about it and, and all the rest. If we don't allow God to say no, we are making three basic mistakes. First of all, instead of being his humble and obedient servant, we have made God our humble and obedient servant. He is the Lord, he is the king, and here we are issuing orders. I want this and I want that. Just like we would ring up Herod, hello, send the cauliflower round, will you? You put the phone down, you see. Or you ring up Waitrose in Chichester or Sainsbury's, you see, and say, I can't get out. Would you send, uh, you know, the Weetabix round? Now, who is Lord in all of that? Instead of God being the sovereign Lord, suddenly he becomes our servant. He's the person who waits on us all of a sudden. And apparently whatever we ask, God will say yes to it. All you have to do is wait, and then it will suddenly arrive. It can't be that way. Yes, it is true you're the son of the king of kings, but he's still the king of kings. Yes, it is true you're a king, but the king of kings tells the king what to do. It is important that you see this. Otherwise, you've made God into an access card machine, you see? And uh, take the waiting out of wanting. Pray about it, right? Come on, God will give you whatever you want. It's not true. The trouble is you can always find one person that it happened to. And that's the big testimony. Forget the other 99, though it didn't work. By the way, Ross and I once needed a thousand pounds. We were traveling along in Bogner, and I said, Lord, I need a thousand pounds. Give me a thousand pounds. And 20 minutes later, an envelope came through the door. A thousand pounds was in it. Well, that proves it. No, it doesn't prove it. It doesn't at all. Beware of this. You'll always find one person who's got a testimony that proves the thing they're trying to say. Be true to yourself in this matter. Don't make it an excuse for lack of faith, by the way. I'm dealing with that next time. But be true to yourself. The second basic mistake that's being made, if you don't allow God to say no, is this. You're actually not allowing him to be wiser than you are. For example, let me take my son and my daughter. Now listen, they really are my son and my daughter. They really are mine. They're born to me. I love them with all of my heart. And as far as they're concerned, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I can buy any tube of sweet they put their heart's desire on. Now, apparently that's enough, you see. You've got to be born again, right? You've got a father in heaven who loves you, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, so whatever you ask for, hey presto, you get it. It doesn't work with my son and my daughter. They drag us into some shops, say, Daddy, I want this tube of sweets. Daddy, I want sweets, sweets, sweets. I can afford them all. And what do I say? No, my children aren't allowed sweets before lunchtime, and they're only allowed one, two, or perhaps three after lunch. Our children have never been allowed to go right through a packet of sweets. We just won't put up with it. We know how delicate these teeth are. We know better than they do. Now, they don't say, you don't love me. Or, God, aren't you big enough to do it? Well, Father, aren't you? Because I'm big enough to do it, I happen to know better than they. And sometimes we ask God for things, and God knows if he ever granted them to us, it would be disastrous for us. 
we've got to allow for the fact that God does know better than we do. And it's at this point we bow the knees to the sovereignty of God. Say, Father, I don't understand that. I think that tube of sweets would suit me down to the ground. But you do know better, Lord. We have to say that. So that's the second thing. All right? Very, very important. The next thing is this. If you don't allow God to say no, I would suggest you don't really know the sinfulness in your own heart. For very often, you see, we ask for worldly, materialistic things, don't we? We long for things to give us extra comfort or to increase our pride or our ego or something, don't we? And God won't do anything that causes you to be less spiritual. He wants you to become more spiritual. I once actually heard of a man who had come to a certain meeting to speak, and a man gave him a Ford Granada, a car, Ford Granada. Now, if someone ever gave me a Ford Granada, I mean, I'd spend the next two weeks thanking them for it. I really would. I'd say, oh, thank you. And every time, oh, I can't get it. Thank you. And I'd be writing them letters and ringing them out. Thank you. You say, thank you, thank you. This man walked to the front, says, um, well, uh, I was here just a few days ago, he said, and uh, someone gave me a Ford Granada, and it was very kind of them. The man was sitting in the audience. He said, but it's not God's answer prayer for me. He said, I prayed for a magenta jaguar. <laughs> now that is sheer worldliness, you see? And this worldliness is creeping in. By the way, that type of thing has no relevance to the majority of Christians. It's a Western affluence type of prayer, that is. The vast majority of Christians wouldn't ask for a magenta jaguar. They're much too busy asking for souls to be saved and things like that, you see. Oh, I, I can give you loads of examples. I actually stayed with a man in Britain, you know, had a very good car, much better than my car, and I've got a very good car. The Lord graciously gave it to me, you see. But um, uh, this man had a superb car, and he said, oh, he said, I can't wait to get rid of this car. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I prayed for a car, 28,000 pound job, he said, you know, and I've, I'm believing that that's the car. And I just thought of what the Lord could do. You know, and there were so, such poor people in his own flock, and oh, my heart just went out. Uh, that is just plain materialism. Beloved, I have to tell you this, God always answers prayer, but sometimes his answer is no. However, don't let that be an excuse for lack of faith. And that's why I don't finish the whole subject of prayer here. We've got another session now talking entirely on the positive faith aspects of prayer, and it's essential. But I've got to say this, because I know that this is the plain fact. We all know it in our lives, that often we pray, and either it's delayed or we find that God actually says, it wouldn't do you any good. Do you know, I think of uh, the women that I prayed that God would allow me to marry, right, when I was at university. Oh, there was one lady in particular. I really longed to marry this lady. And I invited her to a certain ball that we had, and she was the belle of the ball. She really was, it, she was. She looked gorgeous, and I thought we got on very well. She wasn't interested in the slightest way. And after the ball, I said, uh, will you come out with me again? She said, no, I don't think so. And I got on my knees. I begged God to give her to, Lord, in Jesus, it's the desire of my heart. You said I can have the desire of my heart. My, the desire is to have this lady dressed in white, with the carnation. Please, Lord. I met her recently, incidentally. And uh, please, please, Lord, I said. I'm so glad God said no. I really am. Oh, hallelujah. When I met her recently, I thought she's all right, but oh, hallelujah. What a deliverance. What a deliverance. 
I'm so glad he knows better. And when I see my present wife, who is so perfect for me, I think, thank you, Lord, you knew all about it. God will only say no to you. He won't be an ogre. He'll only say no if he's got a better plan for you. Beloved, be mature enough to hear his no as well. I beg you to be mature enough. All right, two last things, and then we'll end for tonight. Talking about the nitty-gritty of prayer, it is essential you pray by yourself. It's essential you send up bubbles of prayer all day long and that you have a time of prayer set aside in a particular day. But, beloved, it's also essential that we pray together. And that is why, in the fellowship here, we ask that if you're a member of the fellowship, please, will you attend one of the local prayer meetings? We have lots of prayer meetings. I've forgotten the number now. Is it 23? We have 23 or so prayer meetings. I must write a full list and, and check that out. But we do that so that you can pop in just for 20 minutes, half an hour, to a particular prayer. Get known by those people. They'll pray for you, you see. If you can't get to a prayer meeting, start one in your own house. That's why we have an early morning one in my house, right? Tomorrow morning. Okay, you're very welcome to come along. We pray about the economy and, and unemployment and things like this. And we seek God. But there are prayer meetings all over. Go along and get to know the people there if you can. It's essential to do. In the early church, they continued in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in having meals together, this breaking of bread. They ate their food with joy and great gladness, and they continued in prayer also. Please, will you do it? It's essential. And last of all, let me say this. May I remind you of what I've said about praying in tongues in former studies. It's essential to use tongues in prayer and to use them regularly and powerfully as you're doing the washing up. Pray in tongues. As you're traveling along in the car, pray in tongues. And God will richly bless you as you do it. Do you see now why, incidentally, I've called this talk the mechanics of prayer? I've tried to deal with all the little things that everyone assumes that everyone knows, and actually very few really know them. But next time, we're on to prayers of faith. And you'll see how praying in faith actually uh, develops everything that I've shared today. Let's just pray, shall we? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Father, first of all, I just do thank you so much, Lord, for answer prayer, even in this uh, Bible study tonight. And I do thank you, Father, you preserved my fast-failing voice at the very beginning of this study. And you've done it, Lord. Hallelujah. We praise you. I do thank you. You meet us when we pray to you in faith. Father, I want to pray in Jesus' name that, Father, the Word of God may be our only guide in these matters. And that, Father, we should be mature. Just ask that as we pray about our former prayer life, you will show us the lacking areas. You'll show us those things we need to know. And, Father, give us understanding. Father, if we have prayed in the past and you don't seem to have answered, give us now understanding as to why you said no. Father, those times where you said yes to the prayer and no to the desire, or no to the prayer and yes to the desire, just show us. And may we be excited, Father. And as we pray from now on, will you just show us how often you answer prayer, though very often not in the way that we initially wish that you would. Do thank you, Father, even for my own wife who is the perfect person for my ministry. I thank you, Father, that I didn't know, but you knew. What can I say, Lord? Thank you that we're in the hands of such a faithful creator, God. 
Just bless us all tonight, Father, and bless us until we meet again. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God.